Gospel of Mark is really a, a unique book among the Gospels. I mean, each one is a little bit different, but it's unique in probably a, a little different way. It has 16 chapters, as you may know. We looked at the last chapter some months ago. Now we're coming back to the first chapter today. But it has 16 chapters. When you compare that to the book of Matthew, it has 28 chapters, and Luke has 24, and John has 21. So it's the least amount of material. It's the short version of the gospel. It's the short version of the message about Christ. And so we could say that it is a to-the-point gospel because it just deals with the important issues. It's to the point. That's one reason I think why it's unique. Another reason why I think it's unique is because there is a sense of immediacy in the gospel of Mark. Sense of immediacy. In fact, the word, in the Greek word is euthus, means immediate, translated immediately, most often in the Gospel of Mark, sometimes translated with other words other than immediately, but um, it's a word that actually occurs 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. That's more times than all of the other writers of the New Testament, which is a total of 12 times in the whole New Testament. And Mark has 42 of them. Sometimes it's translated straight away. Sometimes it's translated at once. But most often it's translated immediately. And um, take your Bible and turn to chapter 1 just for a moment. And you'll see what I mean when we take a look at this gospel just a little bit here. As you look at the gospel, um, you start in chapter 1 and he talks about a course um, He talks about <clears throat> the opening lines there, and then in verse, uh, verse 1, he says, beginning the gospel of Mark, and then if you move down to about verse 10, it says, immediately coming up out of the water. He's talking about baptism there, so that's the first occurrence of it there. And then you go to verse 12, it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, talking about the temptation of Christ there. And then when you go just a little farther, you'll notice in verse 18, immediately they left their nets, talking about the fishermen. Verse 20, immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee, etc., etc. In verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. Verse 28, immediately the news of him spread everywhere. So you get the idea of immediacy at once, right away. John, Mark is just pushing to, to kind of get the message out and show how necessary and how essential it was. We need that, don't we? We need a sense of immediacy when it comes to the gospel and not blasé being passive and backing away. I'd like to challenge you to read through the Gospel of Mark and take a pen or pencil and underline all the uses of the word immediately. Now, there, there are some others. If you're using King James, you might see perhaps straight away used a little more often. Underline those words too or at once. And it's probably the Greek word for immediately. Interesting. So... Uh, it's a, it's a gospel that really has a sense of immediacy that the other gospels do not have. Therefore, it's been called the newspaper version of the gospel. That's why in my opening slide there, I kind of had a picture of a newspaper there, you know, a cup of coffee and your cell phone and, uh, 
and then the title for my message this morning and the title for the series. Because the newspaper is kind of like that, isn't it? it? It gives you the bare facts, it just gives you the basics, and it, it gets them out there for you right away first thing in the morning. You can look at the newspaper headlines on your cell phone, of course, uh, or your computer. But it is like the newspaper version of the gospel. It's different from the others in that sense. And then also, I think when you look at the Gospel of Mark, we have to recognize that it was written very early, perhaps not the earliest of the Gospels. We don't exactly know in every case, but fairly closely. Some think, as John MacArthur does, somewhere in the 50s AD, not too long after Christ had been taken up into glory. Somewhere in the 50s. Others think maybe as, as late as 64, which was just um, a decade and a half later. At any rate, it comes on early in the scene and, and is written and is for our use. If it was written later, it's interesting because, uh, because Nero was on the throne then in Rome and what Nero did was he was very friendly with the people at the very first, but it wasn't very long before there was problems and he began persecuting people. We know that um, Rome burned. Many think that Nero did it and so he blamed the Christians on it because Christianity was growing fast. It was a fast-moving target, you might say, and Nero took a shot at it. And so he blamed the Christians on all of that and so um, what he did was he persecuted the Christians. And reading a little bit about the persecutions, you know, it wasn't nice. Some were covered with animal skins so that dogs would attack and kill them. They skinned out animals and put them on the Christians. Some were dipped in pitch and put on poles and lit up at night to, to light up the gardens as torches. Some were fed to the lions. And the believers in Rome needed some encouragement it may have been that the Gospel of Mark was that very encouragement at the time. Christians down through the centuries who have faced, tr faced that kind of uh, persecution turn to the Bibles because that's about the only place they can get encouragement sometimes. Some of you have been in places like that as I have. So it was written pretty early. And then, and then fourthly, I think we could say that Mark was written by Mark, but his name is two-part. It's called John Mark you may have recognized his name from somewhere else. And um, we find him in the gospel here. Um, it's interesting because when you, look at, when you look at the gospels, none of them actually name their author for themselves. They, they don't say anything about themselves, and John Mark is the same. But we know that that is the authorship because that's from ancient times what has been accepted and Eusebius, Eusebius was a third century historian. I love to read the stories and the, the records of the historians like Josephus and Eusebius and others, Polycarp, because they give us a context outside of inspired scripture to give us a little bit more information about what was going on. And it's interesting because they really pretty much confer with what the Bible says and it just affirms what the scripture already says. But Eusebius was one of those guys in the third century, Christian historian and apologist for the gospel. And he says this, Peter having publicly preached the word at Rome. Talking about Peter now. He says, many of those present exhorted Mark, this is what we think of as John Mark, as having long been a follower of his, that is of Peter, we know that he was, and remembering what he had said to write what he had 
spoken and that having prepared the gospel. Then Peter looked at it, didn't say one thing pro or con about it actually. Eusebius wrote again later about this. He said, Peter's hearers were so penetrated by Peter's preaching that they gave Mark, as being a follower of Peter, no rest until he consented to write the gospel. Isn't that interesting? He was encouraged by the believers to write it. That doesn't mean it wasn't inspired. We believe still it was part of holy canon. It was still part of what we'd say is inspired Christian uh, Bible, scripture, and it was there and has been accepted as that down through the centuries by the, by the early church and later. But Mark was kind of a guy in the back row, you might say. He wasn't a guy up front like Peter was or Paul was. He was a little bit different. Mark was not an apostle. He was not an important person. He was not a public servant of any kind. He wasn't any of those kinds of things. He, he wasn't given a divine job, you might say, like apostleship, or being a bishop or a pastor or anything like that. Best we know of him, he was a kind of a, a helper. A helper, that's what it says about him in a couple of places. And so his Hebrew name is, of course, John, John Mark. John means one who is uh, gracious. Jehovah is gracious, so it's a, it's a scriptural kind of Christian kind of name, you would say. John Mark. We have lots of people named John. So that was his Jewish name, or his Christian name, we could say. But Mark is his Gentile name, since uh, he spent some time in Rome, too. But he was in Jerusalem, to start with. And Mark was a Gentile, meaning it means consecrated to the war god Mars. That's what my name means. <laughs> I was kind of shocked to hear that. Uh, why they named him that, I don't know. So he was called John Mark. Most often, though, you always see it with John said first, Mark said last. So... We can call his gospel Mark as I go through the text this morning as we look at the passages because that is most clearly, won't confuse it with the gospel of John. If we called it, we could have called John, but then we'd have 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 4 John, whatever, you know. But here we have John Mark, and we'll just call him Mark for sake of brevity and for sake of clarity here. So I thought what would be good to do this morning is to meet John Mark. Let's just go over to uh, Jerusalem and kind of meet him and see what he's like, what his background is about. We don't know too much about him, but there are, there are various verses throughout that kind of give us a link to this guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It's good to know something about him before we dive into the text of Scripture. And since I've been away for a couple of months, I got a lot of material, by the way. <laughs> so first of all, we see that Mark miraculously, I would say he miraculously meets Peter. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and to follow me from one verse to another. And they're not going to be in the same book all the time. They're going to kind of jump around a little bit. So turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. You open up your computer Bible or your paper Bible and look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. And we see where he runs into Peter here. Now this is a situation that's in Jerusalem, if you remember there. And Peter 
has been put in prison for the gospel here early on in the beginning of the church. This is before the first missionary journeys. You can keep that in mind. But after the church has already been formed in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a place where the church is just growing by leaps and bounds. And lots happening there. And Peter's preaching. And of course he gets arrested for this. And he goes into prison. But we know the story that um, while he was in the, in the prison there. That an angel came to him and miraculously released him from his bonds and he was free. And he more or less woke up outside the prison. It was just kind of something like that. In verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, And when he realized this, in other words, when he realized that he was out of prison, you know, it wasn't a dream, it was a real thing. It says, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. So it links her with this woman called Mary. Now, in Jewish Jerusalem, there were lots of women called Mary. There were lots of them, so we don't need to worry about that too much. But this one was the mother of John Mark. And she was a godly woman. Evidently, she was a woman who was part of the early church, and so she held probably services at her house. Things were going on there. And she knew Peter, it seems like. And so Peter goes to her house after he wakes up from this prison experience being miraculously freed by an angel. And John Mark is there, and he comes. There's people inside the house. You know the story. You know the story. People inside the house, they're praying for, they're praying for John. They're praying for Peter's release and so forth and so on. And suddenly there's a knock on the door, and Rhoda, the servant, she goes to the door, and she opens the door, and it's Peter! Peter, it's you. <laughs> she couldn't believe it. They're praying for a release, and here's Peter. She can't believe it, so she shuts the door on him. Isn't that interesting? Can't hardly believe it when a miracle does happen. Shuts the door in his face, and she runs in and tells everybody. And, and of course, they did find that it was Peter. Peter came in eventually, and, and Mark, Mark likely already knew Peter because he knew, uh, because he knew Mary. Peter, Peter knew Mary, so Peter would have known John Mark. John Mark would have known Peter. So that's why he came to the house. It was kind of maybe like a house church right at the time there, something like that. I, I can't help but think that, that, that John Mark would have been impressed by this. Maybe he had become a believer already. We don't know that. It doesn't tell us that. But we know these are Christians. They're early Christians. Maybe they're part of the ones who, who came during that time when, the, when Peter preached. And, and John, Mark, sees Peter. I, I just can't imagine what that event would have been like. It must have had a great impression upon him. And Peter saw him and all the rest of the people there. This was just what the people needed in this time. It was a miracle to give them encouragement, I think, there. And a sense of God's protective presence with them in the early church. Because they were fearful. They're just like you and I. They were fearful. But yet they wanted to worship the Lord and they believed in Christ and all that. So it was a miracle. Now we don't live in a formative period like the New Testament church did. There are three major periods of miracles in the entire uh, Bible. Old Testament one and we have New Testament. There's three major periods also all for about 50 years or so. But this is, the, this is one of them very clearly. And this miracle took place. And it had a great impact, I believe, on the people there. Taught them something about how God works in prayer. Let me encourage you to be in prayer for the, uh, for the Franklin Graham thing. 
Do you believe that God could bring many people to Christ in Tacoma that could make a difference? Do you? Then does your prayer life match that? Does it? Let me encourage you to pick up some of the things there and begin praying about that. Pray for our country and pray for uh, Tacoma specifically in that particular event next month. We have a hard time sometimes with that. Well, we see him again with Barnabas and Saul, who would later be called Paul. So what happens is, uh, what happens actually is, is Peter now, uh, dis- he disappears, and his disappearance resulted in, disappears from the prison, I mean, his disappearance from all of that really bothers Herod, and he gets really upset, and he calls the guards in, and and he asks, what happened? Why didn't you keep him locked up? They can't give an answer. They don't know where he is. So he executes the guards. Common thing for Romans to do to their military people if they lost their charges. And then Herod's pretty upset. I think he was upset and he went down to Caesarea. Now on the map that's actually up, but it's down elevation-wise. And he goes to Caesarea Maritime where he had one of his, uh, one of his offices, you might say, there. And he probably goes there for some R&R. When we were there last time, it's very interesting. They've excavated and they found out he even had a big hot tub out on the sea shore. Still there. And you can see the sea washes into it. He probably went there for some, there for some R&R, some relaxation. Kind of stressed out about this because the, the Jews are, the Christians are kind of riled up, you know. So... He had some problems while he was there. He went there to get away from the problems, and the problems came to him. The people from Sidon and so forth and Tyre had an issue with him, so they came to him. He didn't like them at all. They came to him, and they asked for an audience with Herod, so he, he decided to have an audience with him on a certain day. He came in his glorious robes and all of that, and all dressed up, and he came to the, uh, the amphitheater there, which they've discovered, and actually we've stood in the very, st- very spot where he stood. And um, I think it's been been realized that that was actually there for about three decades now but he he went and stood there and they saw him when he came out they began to worship him as a god and he accepted the worship as a god and you know the rest of the story if you've read the new testament story about that it says that he was struck dead by worms and he died very quickly well that sounds kind of weird doesn't it he did die quickly because even josephus the historian who was not a Christian recorded this event and added much detail to it on how painful his death was. But it probably had a great impact on the forward movement of the gospel. Turn to chapter 12, verse 25 of the book of Acts there, and we'll just read a little bit of that. Chapter 12 and verse 25 says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So they were down in Jerusalem, and now when Herod gets taken off the scene, they decide to go up to where Antioch is, which was not too far from Caesarea, Philippi, Caesarea Maritime, I mean, and they, they time wanted to go up there because in Antioch there was a church going in there, and it was a major, it was a major outpost for the gospel, just like Jerusalem was. So they take John with him, Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas and John Mark are cousins, if you remember, reading the account there. And the other places you'll find that out. So they take him with them. It's an ideal situation. John 
Mark, we, we get the picture that he's perhaps a younger man. We get the picture that perhaps he is in the stage of mentoring. We get the picture that perhaps he's with his mother a lot from the picture in Jerusalem there. And he's from Jerusalem. He knows something about Jerusalem. Probably heard about all the things that happened there. Probably knew something about the beginning of the church because he was there and a witness to it. But now he's on his way to Antioch to the north. Not a threat with Herod around at this point. He goes. You know, there's something to say for having a mentor. We have a mentor program here. That's the event. That's really the point of our Saturday once a month breakfast and various other things that Chris and I and others are doing. It's good to have a mentor. I remember some of the mentors in my life. They had a big impact on me. It just came to mind two of them. One was my, my pastor when I was in Kodiak, Alaska, when I was... Uh, when I was home and had some time off, we would go hunting together and we would talk scripture, we would talk theology and so forth. He was a great friend of mine. He was a good shot with a rifle too, by the way. Great hunter. But the best was the spiritual side. He mentored me. And then later on when the Lord got his hand upon me and called me into ministry, and it was one person that was very important to me was Dr. Charles Wagner, who was the first president of the seminary here in Tacoma. And... Um, we had some special times together. He came and spoke at our church, and that had an impact on me. I went to California with him as he preached down there, and I had some children's ministry alongside of him. It was a great time. People like that in your life. And there are other people. There's probably somebody in your life that was like that too. Or maybe you're someone to someone that needs mentoring. Don't back away from it. Perhaps we should emphasize that a little bit more. That's exactly what... Barnabas and Saul were doing with Mark as they took him with him. He wasn't the key guy, they were. Saul now, of course, has come to, come to Christ. He is an apostle, we know that, but he's generally called Saul at this point. And Barnabas here is, uh, is John Mark's cousin. So thirdly, they go on the first missionary journey and turn to chapter 13. You know the story, I hope. We've gone through the book of Acts a while back. In chapter 13, turn to write the first few verses there. And they're praying there. They're in Antioch. This is really the second outpost for the gospel. And this would be the outpost that goes to the Gentiles, while the outpost of Jerusalem would be going to the Jews primarily. Jews, Gentiles, Jerusalem, Antioch. And so, so here we are, chapter 13. They're praying. The church is praying, they're seeking the Lord, and they're praying and they're fasting. Not a bad thing to do. And the Lord just kind of speaks to them. The Spirit speaks to them and sets apart these guys to go on this first missionary journey. Set apart, it says for me there, in the early verses, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's God speaking through the Holy Spirit. That's God speaking. God had to make it real clear to them in those early days, by the way. And uh, so they are set apart for this work, it says here. And so they prayed for them, they laid hands on them, they saw them off on that first missionary journey. It says that it was Barnabas and Saul, but it also says they also had John as their helper. So he's coming along as the helper here with him. Great opportunity with the great Apostle Paul. 
and his cousin Barnabas, who seems to kind of take him under his wing, you know. And they head over to Cyprus. That's the island just off to the west. They take a boat. They go over there. They have a few stops along the way. They get on to Cyprus. They have some problems with a magician and some demon kind of things taking place there. And they pray, and God works, and they're there for ministry for just a little while. And... Um, it says in chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So now they, they leave that area where Cyprus was and so forth, and they head north into Asia Minor to do ministry work. But it says, But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now it doesn't say that they told him to, re to leave. It just says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That was home to him. He kind of appears to be a deserter. In fact, we know he's a deserter because the word is actually used of him as a deserter later. He's a fair-weather friend. He's hot and then he's cold kind of thing. Why did he return to Jerusalem? That's a good question. And uh, just can give you some thoughts on that. Perhaps he was, uh, perhaps he didn't like Paul. Paul was kind of a new leader. Paul was um, a little bit aggressive. We see in verse 13 that his name Paul is used instead of Saul here. Maybe he didn't like Paul. That's a possibility. Graded on Mark, perhaps. Or maybe he didn't like the opposition they saw, the difficult times there in Cyprus when they had the demon issues to deal with and those kind of things, probably other stuff we don't know about. Probably got a little scary for him. That's a possibility. Missionaries go to the mission field, sometimes they come right back. They don't like what they see there. Mission field, it's a glorious place. When you get there, it's not so glorious. Read my son Caleb's blogs recently and you'll see how not so glorious it is it's pretty tough there right now perhaps mark objected to the offer of salvation by grace alone to the gentiles there as we see in the book of galatians and perhaps mark was raised in that jewish context where they added where they added um, circumcision to it Perhaps he didn't like that, or maybe he was having a hard time accepting that. We don't know that. We assume that he was a born-again believer and he wasn't into that, doesn't say that. But there could have been friction there in some way, shape, or form. We don't know for sure, but we can assume that Paul was clearly against Mark continuing with him. At any rate, the grammar clearly says that he left them and went back home. He left them and went back home. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to continue. He disappears for two years now. Now, this is a good time to examine ourselves. Have we ever been in a situation where we volunteered for something, we were doing something, we are involved in service, and then we kind of left, you know? Or we've worked with somebody that, that's come forward to help us, whatever, and then, and then they've left and we're left holding the bag. That's kind of what it is. He didn't, he didn't stay around very long. He didn't stay around very long at all. Two years later, now two years later, we're going to see him in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Paul, Paul, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas come back from that first missionary journey and they come back to Antioch. They give the report. It's a glowing report of what's going on in the churches there. And those churches started. And the gospel has gone even before them a little bit, I believe, too. 
We don't know exactly how it all got to Rome, for example, but anyway, they came back and they reported to the churches after that first missionary trip and there's excitement. And then in chapter 15, they go on a second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 37, chapter 15, verse 37. Put your finger there. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Notice the word deserted. That's what it says. That's inspired scripture. That's exactly what John Mark did. He deserted them. And he didn't go with them to the work. Paul was pretty insistent about this. Verse 39 says, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So Paul takes off. He didn't want anything to do with John Mark. And since Barnabas and Saul were going to go together, that's not going to happen now. So they divide up and Paul takes off and John Mark and uh, Barnabas go to Cyprus. Cyprus, the very place where they were before, a couple of years before, and the very place where he probably made a decision not to, not to continue. Interesting, isn't it? Well, Paul seems to be pretty harsh here, but Paul was an apostle. Some think he should have listened to Paul since he was an apostle. But he was kind of harsh in rejecting Mark. I don't know how that all works out. Well, Barnabas was always more lenient. That seems to be his character. Christian leaders can be different. Some can be harsh. Some can be more caring and so forth. Mark, however, did desert them, quote unquote. But he did not desert the faith. I'll say that. I don't think he deserted the faith. He was with Barnabas. Barnabas takes him under his wing. And we can see that Barnabas is the kind of guy who was an encourager, as we know from his name, and, and helped him. Christosom, he's one of these ancient historians from, from the past, around the times after the church started. He says that, quote, the strife was of great service to Mark, for the sternness of Paul brought a change in his mind while the kindness of Barnabas suffered him not to feel abandoned. Probably some truth in that. God works through those kinds of situations. Sometimes we find ourselves in stern situations. Military is one of those kind of situations when you're in the military. It really is kind of like that. It's stern, but you know what's good for you? If you take it right. And then some people just need that gentle hand like Barnabas had. But in the providence of God, that's how it all worked out. And so the second missionary journey begins and Barnabas and John Mark go off to Cyprus again. God, I think, providentially probably used both groups to more widely spread the gospel. Barnabas disappears now for several years, and Mark for about 10 years. We don't see Mark again for about 10 years. Where does he go? I don't know for sure. So turn to Colossians 4.10. We'll see a little bit more. A decade later, Paul writes to the church in Asia Minor. That's where the 
missionary journeys had taken place. And he mentions Mark positively here now. And keep in mind, this is Paul writing. Now, 10 years later, Paul is writing to these churches in the book of Colossians, and he writes about Mark coming to Asia Minor. And he says in Colossians 4.10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. So Paul is in prison here. He says he sends you his greetings as he's writing to the church, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark. There's Mark again, ten years later, and Mark's with him, referred to as the cousin of Barnabas. He says, and also Barnabas's cousin. That's the focus there. About whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Wow, it's turned around now. It's turned around. Mark is welcome now. So, so he is with Paul and he's serving him, but he's going to be going somewhere else and he's not being kicked out. He's not deserting. He's being told to go and do some kind of ministry somewhere else near Colossae. He says, if he comes, welcome him. What you heard about him before being a deserter, that's changed. Do you believe that people can change? I don't think we can change very much without the gospel. Real deep change comes with the gospel of Christ. And evidently, John Mark was changed. Almost makes me cry when I think of it. Has God changed me? Changed you? In 1 Peter 3, excuse me, 1 Peter 5.13, the apostle Peter sends Mark greetings along with that of the church in Babylon. It mentions in 1 Peter 5. So turn there in 1 Peter 5, just for a moment. This is an interesting passage. This is Peter writing now. So we've listened to Paul, what he had to say. He says, welcome Mark, you know. He's going to come your way. Be sure to welcome him. Don't chastise him. Welcome him. But now in 1 Peter, Peter is writing also. And Peter probably was a little more amiable to him. But anyway, it says here, she who is in Babylon, by the way, she would refer to the church that was in, not Babylon really, but would be in, in probably those areas where the missionary works took place. She who is in Babylon, and Babylon would have been probably a code word for Rome at that point, a code word for Rome. They used uh, secret codes here in the Bible, you know. She was in Babylon, chosen together, that would be the church, this is the church he's talking about, the, the church in Rome, with you, that is the people he's writing to, that's those who are in Asia Minor, they send greetings, and so does my son, do you see it? My son, Mark Peter is saying now. This is not Barnabas saying this, this is not Paul saying this, this is Peter, the number one apostle. He's saying, he sends greetings. It's a positive comment about him. God was at work in John Mark through Peter. God was at work in John Mark through Barnabas. God was at work in John Mark through Paul. And God was at work in John Mark through the Holy Spirit. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. So then we see a, um, Paul's private letter to the, Philippian, to the Philemon also regarding his runaway slave. He had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. And the context seems to suggest 
that this was before 2 Timothy, which was Paul's final letter. So if you read Philemon 1.23, I'll read it for you. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, there he is again, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So Mark would have been included in that. He's a fellow worker now, Paul. And so we see he has really changed and he has gotten in and he has dug his heels in. One more text, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we look at Mark's life. It's very interesting here. And now we see Paul who once chastised him and sent him away harshly and so forth and now says something quite amazing. Paul is in the last year or so of his life. He's in prison the second time. He is going to die in prison, although he doesn't necessarily always totally understand or know how that's going to work. He dies by having his head cut off. His first imprisonment was pretty nice. It was house arrest. It was pretty good. People could come and go, etc., etc. But in his second imprisonment, it was just the opposite. He was in the Mamertine dungeon. It was, it was dirty. It was stinky. It was harsh. 1 Timothy 4.10, at the end, towards the end of that epistle, he says, For Demas... Having loved this present world has deserted me. There's another deserter. His name is Demas now. He's referring to him. We don't want to be deserters, do we? And gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. We think that's a positive um, comment about those people because they went to do the work. But, but of course Demas did not. And then in verse 11, only Luke is with me. Luke was the physician that was with Paul in the end. He's not an apostle, but he's a writer of the Gospels also, just as Mark is. Luke was a physician that seemed to be caring for Paul and the, uh, the physical needs that he had and personal things. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me for service. Isn't that exciting? Pick him up, bring him along. Paul's final tribute to John Mark, once a deserter, now a servant, servant of the Lord. Quite a tribute there. He is a helper to Paul and Peter and the two top men in the New Testament, really. Peter, the apostle to the Gentile, to the Jews, I mean, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And these two guys, they have their hands on him and God changes them. We can't all be under Peter and Paul unless you read the Bible enough, you do, you can. Tradition says that Mark eventually went to Cyprus. Later on, this is tradition, this is not in the scripture, but there are records of those kinds of things and probably some truth to them. He says he eventually went to Cyprus after this, after this amazing story, until Barnabas, which is where Barnabas was from, died, and then he went to Alexandria, that would be in Egypt, where it says um, that he became the first bishop and he died there somewhere uh, in the eighth year of Nero. Something like that. We don't know for sure on all these things and that's not inspired, but there's probably some truth to it and he became a bishop, which would mean he became a pastor. He doesn't seem to be a pastor in the text we have, but maybe that changed later. This is what God does with sinners. Who does Paul and who does Peter have to work with him? 
Who do we have to work with us? Who do we have to do the work of a ministry? Sinners. That's all there are, John MacArthur says. That's all there are. That's all you are until you come to Christ by grace. And it's good to look at John Mark's life. Are you like John Mark? Are you like Barnabas? Maybe like Paul. Are you like these guys? You have a role in people's lives? People have a role in your life? Good to think about. Good to think about. Good to pray about. I um, went, to, um, went to a conference a couple of months ago and uh, a fellow was speaking a lot of quotes. One quote just stuck in my head that I cannot get out and it's a very simple quote. He says, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you end. It's how you end. You may have started, you may have fallen down, you may have deserted, you may have gone the other direction, you may have had second thoughts on things, but it's not how you start that counts, it's how you end. That really counts. Amazing. Have you had a good start, but deserted? Have you had a good start to get rolling in the right direction, but you went the other direction? Have you had the opportunity to help somebody get in a good start? If you've been around, if you've been in church for a few years, and if you know Christ, if you know the book, you can mentor somebody. And that's what we should be doing. That's what we should be doing. Mentoring. Well, as we think of all of that, we come now to verse 1. That's my introduction. That's my introduction. Verse 1. Verse 1. You didn't know who John Mark was, but you do now, don't you? And doesn't that kind of help you have a little bit of understanding as you read these verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm going to ask our servers to um, go out now and prepare for the Lord's table. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Notice how he begins this gospel. There are no genealogies like Matthew or Luke. There is no um, reference to John the Baptist being born, Jesus being born. None of the birth narratives of both John or Jesus are in. None of the miracles that took place early on. He just jumps right in to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? And where is he going with all of this? We're going to look next week in part two as we begin this passage of Scripture and continue on. John baptized people. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I just wanted to make a couple of a brief comments in preparation for it this morning. It's a great time when we have that time. And uh, you may be mature, you may not be mature, as we see in these texts that we all are sinners to start with. But it is good to think through those things. And, and baptism was something that they did even in that time. We'll explain what that means. It's not quite the same as believer's baptism today, but there are some very similar parallels also. Baptism was the symbol in the New Testament church for one who had come to complete repentance in putting their faith alone in Christ alone and had believed and been gloriously saved. And so then they were baptized as an outward expression of that. And we see that in the book of Acts very clearly.
in the starting of the New Testament church. They were baptized, all who had believed. So baptism is the first part, first step in the Christian, uh, Christian walk. It's the very first th thing every believer is told to do. It does not save them, it does not clean them, but it symbolizes the cleansing of the Spirit's work and it does symbolize salvation as they go under the water and raise up again. It symbolizes the resurrection. And then we're given the ordinance of communion, which we're observing today. The Lord's table. We do that from time to time. We only do baptism once because you're only saved once. But we do the Lord's table from time to time as a reminder. It does say that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a reminder. I always like to say that, just in case you're not sure. The bread does not turn into Christ's body, but is a reminder of his body there. In verse 25, the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, it's a, again, it's a reminder. The, the wine or the juice does not turn into Christ's actual blood, but it obviously symbolizes it. It obviously does. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, that meant, meant it was done from time to time, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation of him dying for you. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And that is, if you've sinned and you're not repentant about it and there's sin in your life that continuing, it's not a good thing. But a man must examine himself, and that's what we're going to do in a moment. He must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we take the cup this morning and the bread this morning, when it comes by, it will come by to you and you can take, take it. If you know you're born again and you know you're a follower of Christ, you feel free to take it. No one's going to ask you about that and meditate until you feel ready to eat and drink. It's a symbol of something very important. So take those full few moments and just uh, do that as we pray. I'm going to pray now. We're going to bless these elements and ask the Lord to work. It's going to do a little different. The guys are in back. They're going to come forward and they're going to take it back to you while we do some music and so forth and meditate on these things. Let's pray together, shall we? If you don't take it, it's no problem. It's no problem. Feel free as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these elements this morning. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for the story of, of uh, John Mark, the deserter who became a writer of a gospel narrative. A sinner who was saved and went on to serve as we all should be. And his life was only changed because of what you did. You died on that cross, Lord. We know that. And you shed your blood. And so these simple little pieces of wafers or bread represent your body and the juice represents your blood. Remind us of that again as we take it this morning and the great cost that it was of bearing the sin of the world. Bless it now and bless each one who has 
come here this morning as we come to worship in this way now too, in Christ's name. Amen.